I'm here with my old friend Ash, who put out a book this year and had a kid and lots of new life updates. We were doing a little offline catch up about the craziness. But uh, it's good to see you, man. We, we, we have so many. Um, I was talking about you recently. Oh, you know what? Because you met, you met the girl I was dating for a minute. We're not anymore because I'm not yeah. in the world anymore. But um, you okay. met her. And then I remember we had this really nice talk afterwards because we went to the Strand to Ash's uh, this is a, talk. Yeah. This was when the world was, was a thing. This was like, I don't know what year it was, but it was, <laughs> it was, <laughs> I remember the time it was, it was last time I was in the world. This, I mean, uh, Candace yeah. Bergen was there. It was very cool. And, and I, I walked with her afterwards and like, it made me just hearing you, seeing you and, and hearing you talk about the book and stuff and airmail and whatever, like made me just think about like life that I don't parts of my life that I don't normally think about like the past, you know, just there's a New York city mm -hmm. that you and I know very well that there's very, I have very few, I'm not sure what your life is like today in this sense, but I have very few ties to it at this point. I can't talk New York from my youth with a lot of people especially not the youth like you and I share a weird amount of like we went to college in the same place our parents had their like you know country houses in the same tiny tiny town that there's like five people that I know who have that um yeah I don't know do you have a lot of people in your life right now that like you share old New York with mm, not a lot I mean you know besides like certain family friends but in terms of yeah, you know, for me, it it hasn't, and, and for me, it's also different because I live in Brooklyn now, and I, I mean, that might seem like sh just a short distance geographically from where I grew up, but yeah, it's like a just totally different New York, you know, and obviously it's a different- We are serious than, but, Manhattan kids, like not yeah. like like the, the rare, just given our, our, our pedigree, whatever, like where we came from, like we had a serious- connection involvement to manhattan like both of our parents came from different places but like they were very very manhattan and we like i learned the world as manhattan and 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 your father has made his beautiful oh you know what i took her to uh what was it a blue bar blue room whatever your dad's favorite bar in times square in that times square but like up mid midtown is the blue bar or something. He said it before that it's his favorite. The one and in I the Algonquin? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Oh. Blue or something. I forget. But but I took her there because I was like, this is Ash's dad's favorite bar. And it was fine. <laughs> it was very tourist. I didn't even know that. <laughs> he said it in airmail one time. Hmm. But yeah, so what's what's being in Brooklyn like now? When did you move? Oh, I, I mean, I moved in 2011 so it's you know just been, it's been a minute it's been, it's been a minute and you know i don't i mean things have been a little little crazy here in the last week but it's then i'll tell you one thing like from talking to you know my brother who lives in the upper east side is that things that my neighborhood did not empty out uh <laughs> since the virus started i mean it's not, you don't, I, I think certain parts of Manhattan are kind of have been depopulated over yeah. the last few months. And that's not true here. You know, it's a lot My of- My family went to Washington. Are, okay, yeah. Um, it's, it's, here it's a lot of people who are, you know, more, I mean, share, like us, have like a young kids and things like that. And just, you know, we're just kind of sticking it out. So it's- that's cool. It's, it's a little, it's obviously different because- there's nothing to do but you know we, I go to the park every day pretty much with my young son and like I mean you know unless the weather's just ghastly there's lots of people there so has that I mean, made you we, feel we, we, comfortable or nervous or what it makes me feel good because no I I you know look like 
this is a it's a challenge it's a, it's a challenging thing for us to get through as a you know city country species etc but per, i mean i think that there, there's like a pretty high level of conscientiousness okay in new york and uh but it's still nice to see that people that kind of you know the human spirit is not a thing you know hasn't been crushed entirely just yeah. people you know life life is still going on and it, it just gets sort of channeled into different you know little tributaries like it, it, it never really stops so have you been writing <laughs> yeah you know that's been probably like the biggest challenge for me because i had oh, a couple man. of things that i really wanted to like dive into once my book stuff was done and you know it's been I, I pretty much haven't made any headway with those things just because you know I've got my day job and then just kind of family stuff like it just winds up taking up the whole day and so that's that has been very much on pause I mean you know I I wrote like a couple little things for airmail but nothing like longer than 500 words you know so what's your writing life like like what kind of are you are you someone do you write when it comes do you dedicate time do you have like i'm gonna wake up and i'm gonna go for a walk and then i'm gonna spend four hours at the keyboard like what's your kind of process like that well i mean i'm i'm somebody who's always had a day job so i my <laughs> i used to pretty much work on the weekends like on my own projects and stuff like that like the book you know i did most of that work on saturday and sunday afternoons um and but you know after <laughs> and then it, you know obviously it, the book wasn't done when um my son was born so that became you know i, I had to just and i give my wife a lot of credit for this because like i had to just edit like huge chunks of the book during my paternity leave when he was just a few weeks old and stuff like that. It was kind of crazy. Then there was a period where, cause I my last job was at Esquire and in between I had like a few months where I sort of freelanced and I found that it was too challenging to, you know, like I, I wrote a, you know, a couple of articles and it was just too hard to get it done at home with mm -hmm. him around and so I, I was going to one of those co-working places and, you know, which is not, it's kind of depressing, but it was, it still helped me get the job done. Why do you consider that like the co-work? Well, what do you feel about the co-working spaces? What did that do for you? Cause I think about this stuff all the time, like psychologically. It just gave, I mean, I really, I, I, I was somebody who really needed just a little peace and quiet just because of the, having a young baby around but if I it's not like I mean I don't you know I think the way they they advertise themselves is that uh, you know this is, you're gonna be networking you're gonna be just you know mixing it up and with all kinds of young creative types and stuff and I mean I don't think I ever saw two people <laughs> exchange more than like three words you know kind of can I borrow your charger or something right. like that so it was just kind of a, a lot of people like who were very much in doing their own thing on their own kind of electronic setup and there were, you know, just who happened to be in the same room together, kind of. The psychology of co-working spaces. So, I mean, it started with Starbucks, you know, with coffee shops, like back in the you know nineties, yeah. then Starbucks and then straight up, like we, you know, this is a place to, to co-work. Um, not to work, but to co-work, like not here's a place for you to go, but it's, I think a really important distinction that uh, has a lot to do with the, you know, psychic condi condition of today that yeah. you didn't advertise it as a place to go to have some peace and quiet and do your work. They advertised it as a play, as, as a co-working space, like you just said, to network, to, you know, we're going to have happy hour. We're going to have, whatever you know we're gonna have talks and stuff so the community aspect of it i am someone who i'm weird 
so I've always been this way. I don't know how much you remember about like, like Alex and Andrew would make fun of me because I would stay in my room downloading music and going through like, like file share sites. And I had four computers. I would do that and movies and stuff. I would do that for days and I would be, and they, they would think that it was like I was going through a depression or something like that. And I was like, totally okay. with It was just regular. It was just, this is how I felt I should spend my day, you know? And today, in, fact, like, in fairness to them, you did, yeah. you did have like, you had like piles of detritus on the floor. Oh yeah. You were it was, doing it, it so. was disgusting. <laughs> yes. It was disgusting. <laughs> I lived like that for a while. Like it was, I don't know what made me change, but I had like messy cluttered everything for years. I don't, I think about it now and I don't know how I didn't care. Cause now I'm like this super minimalist. Like I'm in this space and I'm in this huge house in Mexico right now that has not a lot of stuff, but like the few things that there are drive me crazy. And I'm like, you know, I just, I want the shelves to be empty. I want like the eye lines to be, I'm, I'm, I think about eye lines, you know, um, one of the things like, so, so, okay. So when I, I think coworking is crazy is, is what it, you know, what it adds up to me is like the peace and quiet that you talked about. That makes total sense. Like, okay, cool. Home is not peace and quiet. You get distracted. You get, uh, people have access to you and you want to go somewhere to get peace and quiet and no one has access to you. That totally makes sense to me. I would do that. I've all, I, I, you know, I'm not married. I don't have kids. So I, I have that at home. So I stay at home and I just make that my workplace. But if I didn't, I would want a space to go do that with the idea that you want to go some to another place to be around other people is, is, and do your work around other people is insanity to me. I've never been able to connect with it. It's one of these things with other people that I just find this like sociopathic disconnect from that when they, when they tell me their need and their desire to, you know, for interaction like that, I just personally, I get so, I'm like, I don't know why. It's the same thing, like I don't do drugs. And people tell me, you know, how, how did you resist? How did you, you weren't tempted? And I'm tempted, like it made no, it makes no sense to me to want to do drugs. And so it's never been a resistance. And the same thing mm-hmm. goes with like the isolation, the solitude right now. Like this is blissful for me. I feel uncomfortable that I'm not, you know, not, going through similar things that you're going through that that's my only discomfort is that I have all these people in my life who are going through such trials right now. And I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm super taken care of out here. I'm like, so, Oh my God, it's so great. And I'm not lonely. I'm not like, like I have so much shit to do and I never, so, so the, the idea of co-working spaces of we work of all this stuff is madness to me and it makes it makes a great analog to what people are going through right now where they just want to get out again they just want to be socializing and they don't care about you know risking Mm -hmm. the virus and i'm like that's nuts like people called me and asked me for like underground party invites and stuff like a month ago (laughs) and i'm like you're nuts like you're irresponsible you're an asshole and you're like what's wrong with you Take this time to just be, you know, the one time ever to like be inside yourself. So I don't know. That, that's, that's my, I, I'm happy that you framed co-working spaces the way that you did because that's the way that I think about it. That's their utility to me. Well, although I will say, you know, I, for me, this was just a brief interlude between day jobs. Uh, but, you know, I am somebody who I like working with an office as long as I feel like I'm around kind of, and I always, all the jobs I have had, I've felt like I'm around smart people and that are kind of turning me on to new things. So, I mean, for, so I, I I edited when I was at Esquire, a great article by um, the writer Eric Konigsberg on WeWork. And it's not, it's not something I'd given a lot of thought to um, beforehand, but I mean, I, Eric's conclusion is basically that, you know, everybody, like everybody used to work in an office and then companies started kind of trying to divest themselves of, of 
their obligations to their employees and, and having Overhead. more flexible workforces yeah. and so forth. Yeah, exactly. And so, Consultants and then, then, cut and then not, suddenly we have a, a, you know, a whole generation that doesn't have that kind of office life. And of course, like that just a new market comes along that tries to sell it back to them, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's happening like, with <laughs> everything now. Radio, with cable television, you know, with cable television, it's like, you don't want to sign up for all these different streaming services. You don't want to deal with it. Here's a bundle. That's going to happen any day now. And that's just cable television. It's already kind Spotify of Spotify is radio. Yeah, now is. there's AM and FM on Spotify. You have talk radio, which is podcasts, and you have you know, playlists, which is just FM radio. Yeah. <laughs> you want to listen to Hot 97? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, we got your rap playlist. You want to listen to, you know, yeah. whatever fucking what, KTU? Here's your dance music playlist, you know? That's it. It's totally true. And I mean, <laughs> what you're saying with the cable TV thing, that's happening on uh-huh. Amazon right now. Because yeah. otherwise, you know, uh, I mean, I certainly don't want to live in a world where there's only Look, I was a I was a pretty early cord cutter, but at the same time, I don't want to live in a world where there's only one stream big viewing service, and I just have to choose from what they right. decide to show me. And you know, I mean, I, I I know you're a big film guy. Like, I wrote this piece at for Esquire that was like just like a little for the culture section, a roundup of alternative streaming services, and I came across this horrifying statistic about Netflix that. Fewer than 2% of all the movies that they have on there were made before 1980. And less than a half percent, less than 0.5%. Were, oh, no, wait, sorry. I got that wrong. It's fewer than 2% were made before 2000. Mm-hmm. And, only, and ha- roughly yeah, a half say, percent wow, were made I before 1980. I mean, yeah. that's, that's crazy. Yeah. And I just think, I think that for a, a lot of young people who you know, laugh in my face when I tell them I still have a DVD player. Uh-huh. They, it's like, if it's not on there, it doesn't exist for them. It, but it really is now with the internet, with the physical media, you could dig and find, you know, you just have to physically mm-hmm. remove things. And then there's the physical, then there's another DVD, you know, you go to the video store and there are things in the front, but that, yeah, yeah, like you wanted to look up the thing, you find it. Now you actually can bury something for good period. It doesn't exist with, with mm-hmm. the digital world. Cause you, cause no one sifts through the noise. It's impossible. It's actually impossible. Like you would have to build. Well, I mean, I, I, an example that I'm, I'm sure, sh- I'm sure you're familiar with already, but like, you know, cause it's not even, it's, it's not even uh, obscure things. And I'm, I'm, you know, you and I are, have that in common that we, we like to dig and discover obscure things, but De La Soul, like one of the biggest musical acts oh, of not on youth, streaming services. Not on any streaming service. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think some of their later albums are, but like none of their no, the three the main key ones. albums. Are. There's three that, that are important. You know, three. I, I would argue Hinders. four. Okay, fine, but, but yeah, none of them are on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's that's just crazy. And it's like to a, a whole young generation that may have discovered, like Tribe Called Quest, for example. Right you know, on somebody's Spotify playlist, Dale Soul just doesn't Dying exist Rising. to them. Yeah. yeah. It's nuts. I, I look at, nuts. I, I comment on like the ESPN. I don't know. This is like one of my old man things that I do. Like I'm, I'm pretty resistant to the old man things, but like I comment on at ESPN Instagram a lot and just like, d- you know, delineate what their social media strategy is here and like call them out on it. And I have a blue check, so everyone sees it, and I get and people respond, and it's it's like a fun thing that I get to do. But they do like best of all time this, and it's always like if 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 you listen to ESPN today, all the best NBA players, like half of them are in the league right now, and the rest of them are yeah. you know in the two thousands, and then there's like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and Michael Jordan. And, that, and, and like those are the best players yeah. of all time. There was something like like Bob Cousy wasn't on like a top twenty five point guards list or something like that. And it was like yo the guy who's won more titles than any point guard ever. And it's like you're not gonna mention him. And not it wasn't like a coincidence yeah. that Bob Cousy won a bunch of titles. He was one of the two. He was the, he was basically co captain of nine titles he was the best point guard in the league for I mean, decades. 
I think I think that that's what you're talking about is definitely a related phenomenon. I mean, of course, with sports, you know, you can get into the whole thing of like, okay, well, you know, would Babe Ruth, if he was alive today, yeah. how well would he do? And that, but I mean, and look, these are who who knows. But there is, but the reason I'm saying that is like, there, you could, in in you know, if you were able to clone, you know, I don't know what like joe lewis mm-hmm. you could have him fight the current heavyweight champion and see who would see win but when it comes to art you know that there's not the same it's not the same um it can't be measured in the same way and so yeah. it it to to skew things so much toward the present it is just it hasn't there, there, you know it's not there's no argument that I mean, and yes. I certainly would the love to hear somebody try to make it. Even, yeah. yeah, there's no value for value argument that like a film yeah. from 1947 or something. Like the film from 1947 has inherent value in that it is from 1947 and it is what it is as an artistic formal expression. There's no comparing it and saying, well, filmmakers got better. That's not a thing. You could say- yeah fighters got stronger yeah. and therefore we don't yeah. care about fighters from the 60s like you could say that it's dumb as fuck i think but like you <laughs> could say that if you really want um it's like i think it, just to close this thread we don't need to keep doing this one but like uh football all the top quarterbacks of all time statistically are right now when we were born dan yeah. fouts uh, was the first quarterback. Like it was all Johnny Unitas, Dan Marino, and like Dan Fouts. And they were the only like statistical anomalies because they played in Johnny Unitas was just great. And Dan Fouts and Dan Marino played in systems that allowed them to pad their stats. They were the, that, that was it. Everyone else was like, actually like you looked at like Joe Montana is not the best statistical quarterback of all time, but like Drew Brees triples him now because they play in systems. And if you look at all the stats of all the just QB history, like quarterbacks that played three years are in like the top 15 of all time in certain rankings, like every single yardage, every quantitative stat for quarterbacks is with a quarterback from the last five, 10 years. And that's just because of systems. So if people look at that and are like, well, Drew Brees is the best quarterback of all time. Like, it's just, no, like, but, mm-hmm. but Netflix wants us to think. Like, I mean, I'll say that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like <laughs> while I was writing my book and people were, um, would ask me and, you know, what, like, or I'd mention it and they'd say, well, what's it about? And, I'd say it's an oral biography of Mike Nichols. And if the person was, you know, I would say like, let's say 40 and over, they would just be like, oh, that's great. You know, mm-hmm. like love Mike Nichols and, and cite some, whether it's like one of the comedy one albums or a movie or whatever it is. Yeah. Anyone younger than me, I mean, with a few exceptions, who's Mike Nichols? <laughs> I mean, and it's it's not that they look like the guy was, he was a pretty commercial director. So, you know, you, if you rattle off a few of his credits, they'll be like, Oh, you know that, but there's no sense of him and how he changed American culture at all. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think even, even these are, you know, people who would probably know who like Alfred Hitchcock is or people who are kind of even predated, um, Nichols, and that's, I guess, maybe just because Hitchcock sort of made himself into such a... a he was a brand. A, yeah, brand, exactly. That's well he said. He works really well for today's audience, their language, their vocabulary, their understanding. The auteur yeah. theory of Alfred Hitchcock is very easy to grasp. Mm-hmm. But it's harder for... You know, Kubrick, I think people know about because... Every single one of his films was Mike Nichols is kind of a Kubrick style director, the way that I see it, where he built different than Kubrick is he also like had his own things that was like the Mike Nichols thing, like Nichols in May is where it kind of started. But Kubrick, just every single movie he made was was an ecosystem, was a universe. And mm-hmm. he went in and did this whole and and so like you can connect 
singularly with, like I talked about, you know, Dr. Strangelove the other day with someone who did a, a big art film. Actually, it's on Netflix about nuclear, you know, n- n- nuclear bombs today. Um, but Nichols did, Nichols did that also kind of, he went deep into these, he created these worlds for each of his films. Like, you, you know, the auteur theory is difficult on Mike Nichols because you could, there's a lot of films actually, like when I was reading the book, I forgot that was Mike Nichols, you know, and I'm not, I'll never forget mm-hmm. there's a Kubrick film because he, well, he only made a few, but Nichols made a lot of movies and I didn't remember that was like, like you had chapters on things that like, I forgot that was Mike Nichols, you know? I think, I think that if uh, my having my attitude about that, I think you're right, but I think that it, it, um, I think that the stuff he did early in his career is much more auteur like. And then, and I, because I think he had more, he had more the to graduate prove. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? Things, yeah. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, Catch 22, Carnal Knowledge, and Silkwood, I think it's like the last kind of auteur like movie. After that, I think that his interest forgot so was was much more just in performance than in kind of you know he he lo- he lost a little bit of interest in the other elements of film. Okay. Um, so I think that that's why they become less distinctive, you know, in that way. There are, and I think that overall, I mean, I would say that those movies that I listed. I do think those are his best movies for the most part. There's a few later on that are really strong, but, mm-hmm. um, but I think that, you know, if, if I was going to make a generalization about the direction of his career, I think that, you know, he just, everything kind of fell away except for just directing actors was really the, you say it in the book that he, uh, you know, he casts actors. He, do, he doesn't direct them. He casts them. And that's his, that's yeah. the most important part of his process. I think of the birdcage as like a late, you know, masterpiece of his. Oh, that yeah, like, totally you know, agree. yeah. Like he just he put the pieces together. Right. And didn't fuck it up. And it's, yeah. Oh my God. It's as enjoyable of a film. Like just, yeah. Well, I think, I think that's the one key. And then the other key that I heard over and over and it's, you know, as you, you'll recognize this from Kazan is that, he he liked to blur the line between the actor and the role and okay and just so he would he built in all this um and he could do this because he was a success but he built in a lot of rehearsal time that was frankly like unheard of before and since in hollywood and he used that time just to get to know the actors as people and they would kind of open up to each other and because and and then and he would tell stories and they would just kind of have these conversations about their lives that were sort of, you know, related to the material. And then once like the filming started, yeah, he wasn't very hands-on at that point because he, he felt like at that point you have to kind of let them do their thing, but that he can kind of, you know, help, help them point them in the right direction a little bit and, and, and do that through sort of, sharing life experiences you know getting naked as as one of his actors was the phrase he used totally. for me although just i gotta you know in the in the me too era i have to specify that that's a metaphor okay <laughs> metaphor, right there were two stories in the book that i really enjoyed about exactly what you're talking about one with dustin hoffman talking about his brother and the contrast between how his brother was the one who the girls would call for and how he got dustin hoffman to sort of shift his energy in a scene by saying play your brother and then he said okay now stop and then he went back but he went back imbued by having just done the brother thing and 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 like he knew he was sending him somewhere inside psych you know psychically uh and then the nathan lane story i liked a lot where he did that with nathan lane and then didn't use it because he said it overpowered the next scene and Mm -hmm the the improv take that they did when they went really deep was just it ended up great but it was too funny yeah when I mean, the these days it would probably wind up on a dvd or something like that but that right, was true his um longtime editor sam osteen you know he and mike had a f- the the shorthand they developed was movie scene moment you know that was the hierarchy so movie like scene moment 
Yeah, you would never want, you would never pick a moment that undermined a scene or pick a scene that undermined oh, a movie. You know, yeah, so like that was a good example of that where, yeah, the scene, it was a great scene, but it it undermined what he wanted to, the sort of the, the way he wanted to build, to, to pace the film. And so he had to throw it out, even though it was probably the single, you know, according to the people who made the movie, the single funniest take that they shot. Hmm. Huh. And he would do that on Neil Simon plays too, like cut lines that were that were that would kill. just got huge laughs and would killed just because they took people out of the the play too much. Hmm. So where tell me the genesis? I know you've you've talked about this a lot, but like, what's the genesis of why you chose to write this book on Mike Nichols? Well, so after college, um, and yeah, just so people know like you we were at Emerson at the same time I was at BU yeah. and we had some friends in common and stuff and uh so after college I went I wanted I was in the I wanted to you know go and become a movie director I figured that I should start by getting a PA job on a movie I tried to get on uh Wes Anderson's movie the Darjeeling Limited and couldn't I later found out that a lot of the crew got dysentery so maybe i you know oh, wow. dodged that bullet but anyway i i wound up on as like the the fifth pa on charlie wilson's war which is was mike nichols last movie and you know basically i i mean i was already i was a i was somebody i mean you know i knew the comedy albums um and some of the movies i loved but i didn't really have like that much of a sense of him as a person for the reasons we talked about because he did he didn't really make himself into a brand but he was in the little interactions that i had on this set with him and it was a big set so there were very few between so it was that and plus after the movie i found out another pa friend of mine um uh who he went to work for Mike's production company. I found out that he taught an acting class at his little school in Chelsea. I'd never heard of it. And, and I got, I, I, my friend like got me into two classes. I just sat in the back and, you know, he's just like, I think that, I think that there's enough of, I think McNichols produced enough work to like enough genius work to be in you know the kind of 20th century american pantheon he also mm -hmm. did a lot he did a lot of stuff that's pretty forgettable like no question about it but as a person i just never i've never met anyone like that he's just he's the smartest was the smartest just most charming funny person just like and so articulate about kind of art and the creative process and performance and I mean, I was just completely uh, kind of taken by him. And, 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 you know, when somebody like that, you know, dies and hasn't even written a memoir, all, I mean, yeah, like he was a very, he kind of, he lived, <laughs> he was not a, you know, he would have been freaking out during this time because he, he loved, you know, just loved the company of other people. And, but you know what it was like to be around him that's gonna go with those friends you know unless somebody goes around and kind of asking the questions and stuff and recording the memories so that that was pretty much it and my co-author also um he wrote a few magazine articles that in about mike nichols and so he had his own kind of history with him and we just got to talking like after right after he died about you know our shared enthusiasm and he, he had the idea and just asked me if I would you know work on it with him and uh, you know Love. it was a no-brainer no-brainer for me so what goes into because now, now the first oral history kind of book that I read was was uh, please kill me legs McCain and Jillian McNeil uh, from you know early 2000s what what goes into that you know, you're doing 150, I think you said, interviews. I'm sure there were more. Um, you know, what what's that like? 
how do you plan that? How do you go about, do you, do you, do you contact everybody? Do you have a sort of like producer person? Like, what is it like? Yeah. No, it's, I mean, that's the thing when in the, yeah, it was basically all, it was just us. And I mean, that's, that's the, the kind of the pain in the ass part is just the organizational aspect and, and kind of going through all the go-betweens and, you know, publicists and managers, not that they're, you know, I mean, most of them are, perfectly pleasant to deal with but it's just i'm not somebody who is great at producing you know i've had to do it some in my working life but it, i would never call it a skill so i just kind of did my best and I, I set up a dedicated email for it to help me kind of keep the correspondence organized and stuff like that but you know you just i just start, started with the obvious people and then like they, they lead you to people who you wouldn't have thought to talk to. And of course, right. un annoyingly, that and process... You get a from someone major exactly, and then that opens exactly. up more doors. Yeah. 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 Annoyingly, that that continues even after the book is published because I like constantly some, I find out that somebody was like a great friend of his and I just would never have thought to ask to talk to that person like a, and so forth. But, and and second edition or something. <laughs> yeah. Why did you, this is just as you were talking just now, this occurred to me, like, why did you not do an introduction with this context that you just shared with me? We put a, I mean, there's a very brief version of it in the acknowledgements, I think. Oh, okay. Anyway, I mean, I certainly, you, you, although I could be, I might, I might not, I could be wrong, but I, mean, I don't remember saying You anything. know what, that's a fair, it's that's possible. a good question. The honest truth is just that we, we just, didn't want to make we wanted to just keep the focus on the subject but sure. but yeah okay what was like the most surprise like who, who who did you who like came out of the woodwork that you really really like did well, not expect so I, to talk to i'm not that uh I'm, I'm not as as steeped in theater um you know as i, I i'm not as familiar and so there were, it was a lot of the theater people who I, I just didn't, I wasn't, they weren't necessarily, you know, I mean, both theater producers. It's harder but to also be a big even, student of that too. It's just not out well, and also, as much. I mean, it's not, and also, first of all, exactly, it's hard. You You're not there. See like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you got to be, and, and second, you know, it's frankly kind of an expensive hobby these days, you know, back in the 1940s, maybe you could go see five plays a week for like a couple of bucks a performance, but that's just not the case anymore. So I went to anyway. opening night of uh, who's afraid of Virginia Wolf with, with um, Rupert Everett and uh, what's her name? Um, man, I'm blanking, but like really great female actress was, mm -hmm. was, was the, was the wife. Uh, all, all of them were great, but yeah, I went, I went to opening night and then a week later, you know, it closed because of quarantine, but yeah, I had a week in New York where I went to theater. It was, it was opening season right before, um, you know, preview season actually, you know, no, we didn't get to openings cause it shut down, but yeah, I, I was in New York yeah. for 10 days and I just stacked my schedule with theater, opera, ballet, film, <laughs> there were, there were a couple of film festivals, French rendezvous with uh, French cinema at Lincoln center. And I had this beautiful like 10 days where I just stacked stuff and then I left that's, again. But yeah, yeah I saw Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf right before I left. But yeah, it's expensive as fuck. It's like I spent a couple thousand dollars, you know, yeah, on those things. No, I mean, it's, 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 it's very expensive. There's options but, you could do like like rush tickets. That's a thing. Yeah. But they're very hard to get for the, like for the big shows, you can't get them at all. They're very hard. Yeah, and sometimes you got to stand online for hours. Yeah, so it's only like, certain people are able to do that and right. stuff like that. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, it's in terms of what we were saying about like not being able to see old plays and things, it's an interesting thing that I discovered in talking to the theater people is that they, they, they'll like mention an old performance and they'll just, it's like a tick where they list everyone who's in it and mm -hmm. even, and like the theater that it, the play was performed in and all these things. Wow. And it occurred to me later, I mean, it seemed almost kind of Rain Man-like at first because it's, it's <laughs> a lot of theater people do it. And I realized later that they, it's like a, this sort of unspoken thing, but where they, there's a sense of responsibility that they have to kind of perpetuate the memory of these things. And you just don't see that same kind of active 
uh, practiced memory of things like that with film nuts, I think, you know, because you can, with, sure. with, with film, you know that the source is always there and you can refresh your memory and notice new things and stuff like that. But these people, I mean, they're referring to things that they may have seen sometimes, you know, 30, 40, 50 ago, years yeah. ago. Yeah. So it was, an, it's an, it was an interesting difference between those worlds. I certainly have, I've gotten more into theater over the last, you know, 10 years of my life, but I wasn't, I was really a film person. Um, I think it's, I think it might be because I'm doing my work in a different way now than I was before, but I was always like, I didn't have the same experience with theater when I was younger than I did with film. I always thought of theater is like I'm there to watch the actor going through their experience and with film I go through my mm -hmm. experience in the theater but I always felt like unmoved by theater when I was younger but but I'm getting now uh, the last couple of years I've been I've been pretty on it audible for your book like how do you feel about that happening mm -hmm. and what's that process like I just, I gotta say, I've never, I've never listened to a, an audiobook start to finish. Uh, I know you said that you're, I, you I do, do it all the time. And yeah. Yeah. I read, I'm I know constantly reading. I separate what I read and what I audio. Like I won't like, a, a, you know, literary fiction, for example, I would never, cause you need to be yeah. the word you need to read slow and you, but like, Frankly, you know, I read some of, I, I did both on yours, but, um, and oral history is made for audiobooks in my yeah. experience. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think it's probably suited more to certain types of books than others. I think that there are some which it would just make no sense for at all. But at the same time, like, I mean, I think I, I admit I'm, kind of somebody who who puts the the written word a little higher than the spoken word but mm -hmm. at the same time you know so the the spoken the oral tradition is way older than that's true the printed book. wow so you know yeah. in a way it's just, just sort of a return to that um and and i'm just in a way that just uh i mean just because i can't fully get on board with it doesn't mean that you know it's not it may not maybe it's a positive thing i don't know for me it's really about what kind of expression what kind of form i'm consuming at that moment and if the flow of the words if the poetry of it if the the way that they you know if the syntax is important i i, I want it to be on the page I want. I want to be sitting with it at my own pace. <clears throat> However, there's a lot of books that I like to read that are more, you know, information. And it's more kind of like that. I think about it like that Neo in the Matrix idea of like, if I could just implant, you know, it's not so much about the experience of reading this as much as knowing what's in it. And those are the ones yeah. that I tend to audible. I don't audible books where I'm you know, the, where the literary aspect of it is like, if it was your, if it was not an oral biography, I would not feel comfortable. Like I would want, I would need to read the written word of yours to say that I, you know, know what you did, but because it's an oral history, I feel like the audible it's for, for me in my experience, I'm sure there's contradictions to this, but I've always, I've been like felt safe consuming it in that way. But I've read, I've tried to do audibles on fiction books and it's like, mm -hmm. you get lost, you drift, you know, because when you're reading fiction, when you're reading anything really, like you'll go a page and then like, you know, it's a meditative state and I'll go somewhere else and then I'll have to go backwards and be like, oh wait, I missed that part because I was drifting. And that's totally okay. That's, that's part yeah. of the beauty of it. You know, it's like transcendental me. meditation. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm always just kind of, you know, staring off and... <laughs> But it's awesome. Every, every it's, couple of, yeah. Yeah, it's like, I, I sort of got off of the, there was a time in my life where I was obsessed with like, that I read too slowly and wanted to learn to read faster and stuff. And now I'm kind of like, now that I guess maybe like, I got really good at consuming things. 
I can read really fast and I can, uh, I know how to, I know how to do the audio stuff to the point that my comprehension is really high. I've developed like, what are the physical things I should be doing in those contexts, you know? So I can consume at three X and like actually know, like I could quote things to you from a book that I consumed at three X. I mean, I, I literally did like in this conversation, mm. I listened to a lot of your book at three X and I, I remember. I don't, I, I don't recommend that, but okay. no, I, it, it took me two years, I would say to get mm. to that point because it's both about be, training your ear to listen and also knowing uh, the physical activity that you, you need to be doing something in order That's to. True. I mean, I think that you, what, the key thing, which is what you said, is to, it's about what, what, what the material is and what the best way of consuming that is. And, and even to the point that, you know, even for just in terms of reading on the page, I think there are some, some books they have like a, there's a tempo. Some books just, they want to be sort of, you know, gulped down and others, others like are very different. And, and, you know, like, uh, the leopard, for example, that's a book, like it's of a very, I would very never short. Audible that book. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a very short book. It's like, you know, under 200 pages. But when I read it, it t- I, I spent like 10 days reading it because, I just wanted to, that felt like the sort of the right, you know, just that the sort of Sicilian aristocratic feeling of the book kind of demands that. And that's the best way to experience it. And I wouldn't, I wasn't, you know, getting impatient with it. I mean, I wanted to. 10 minutes, 20 minutes with a page and just like, let it linger. Mm -hmm. Same thing with, you know, Lucino Visconti made the film and yeah. another one, another novella, Death in Venice, Thomas Mann. I have never finished it actually. I've let, I, I've mm. savored it over a few years now. Um, I have, I have it sitting right there. It's been in my backpack for a long time for, for a few years. It's been like my main plane read. And I've read the guy that he encounters in the beginning. Like I know very, very well at this point because I've caught myself back up a bunch of times and I've never finished it. And it's, it's, I think it's a hundred pages, you know, not even, it's, yeah. it's very short, but yeah, but I spend, I'll spend a day on a, on a page and just like, let it be my day. Mm-hmm. But then I'll also three X an audible book on, like I did a Wagner biography that was like 20, 28 hours or something. And I, I gulped Jesus. it up like because it was just it yeah. was stories it was information you know i wanted to know i'm doing a wagner episode next week which i'm excited about i've read a lot of wagner books lately but um you know there's a new book there um alex ross has a new book wagner book coming out okay. in a couple months yeah check it out um talk to me about airmail a little bit before we wrap yeah. then my, my my time is limited i know i know I, yeah not that's that why i'm trying this my, my last but my um, last topic. yeah i mean i so i've been i've been it's you know started like last spring i joined the crew in the late summer and uh for those who are not familiar it's 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 a digital weekly but it's got you know it's kind of a, it's a digital product with a print soul is how I describe it because oh, that's nice. it's, and that's partly because the, the, the main team of people who work on it are all, you know, print veterans. And that's even including me, which is, I'm probably like the youngest person who didn't have any digital experience Cassie before, did. you know, up, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, she's a columnist, but I'm just saying, yeah, yeah. you know, like, but my, my career up to this point was working for print magazines, which is, kind of insane because I don't think a lot of other people my age like had that experience but but um so both you know in the design and in in the attention to I mean you know just the fact that we copy edit and fact check every piece you know that that really it slows the production process down a lot like we can't just kind of throw things up online the way a lot of websites do but I think it it I think people can tell um, you know, that it's kind of cared for in that old school way, even though it's sort of the delivery is new school. And, 
so I think it's kind of a, a hybrid product in that way. And, um, you know, cause to me, like, it's not, I'm not against embracing new technologies. Like I'm very much for it, but I think that you also have to be always asking yourself, you can't let the technology like decide what, what your new values are going to be. You know, you have to, you have to hold on to some things that, um, that were worth, that are worth holding on to of the old ways. And so even if, even if, uh, printed and bound, you know, magazines are a thing of the past. There was a whole system there that got set up over the decades. And I just think it's a mistake to throw that out in sort of the rush towards, you know, quote unquote progress. I think it's great. Every week there's, there's always like one or two articles that I end up like sending out to people. There's, there's, you know, a very diverse set and there's always one or two that I'm that I like really give a shit about. And what I think is also really, really valuable that you guys do is that uh, worldwide like search engine of, of just art listings and happenings around the world. Like I can just plug yeah. in, like I've literally had times where I'm trying, I travel, I work remotely at this point. So I, I'll sometimes just wake up and be like, where should I go today? And I've literally based it on that a couple times. Like I've just like Googled the three, not Googled the uh, airmail searched like three options and been like, what's happening. And Oh, I want to see that. Okay, cool. Let me look at flights. And I've gone. That's happened. Like, like I was at the oh, bacon uh, Pompidou opening because of that. I timed my trip because I saw that from airmail that like I was happening in Paris in that window. And I was like, Oh cool. I'm going to, I was going to meet a friend in either Milan or Paris. And I made it Paris because I wanted to be there for the bacon opening and I was the first person I got tickets to the, to the 11 AM, uh, you know, window and oh man, it was fucking awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, dude, you got a one year old That's that great, needs man. some love and I really appreciate yeah. this and I love catching up and I hope that likewise, thanks for having I, me on, man. Yeah, man, my pleasure. And I hope that somewhere in the new world we can have a proper tea together be that yeah. New York, Brooklyn, Washington, whatever, and uh, stay safe. Keep writing. I hope. I hope to see more. Likewise. I love the Mike Nichols book. I, I guess I, I didn't. I didn't say that definitively. It was more implied, but like I love the book. It's so much fun to read. I learned so Thank much. Um, I, yeah, like it's a great, great, great read for both a film lover, a person from New York City who knows that energy, the theater and stuff like that. And, and just like people, there's just so much humanity in it. And the, like, like the, the opening chapters permeate the rest of the, the book in such a beautiful way that you think about his hair throughout the whole book. And that permeates my understanding of everything else that happens. And it's a really well constructed read and, and I loved it and congrats and thank you for doing it. And thank Thanks, you for doing John. this. And I look forward to seeing you somewhere. Looking forward to it. Cheers, man. Till then.